You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Good to be back in this room. We did not meet in this room. There's a bunch of stuff on here that I'm going to move. Ben, sorry. Um, I like to be unhindered. Um, We didn't always meet in this room. We moved to this room, um, I don't know, a couple years into my tenure here, and I'm glad you all are still here. I think this is a great room. Um, for a lot of reasons, and the things around the... Oh, that's my... That's the one. Sorry. Now I have two, and your stuff's messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, it's great to be here, and glad that RUF still exists, and glad that y'all are still meeting at the Reynolds for a little while longer. I plan on coming there uh, in two weeks to their house on Sunday night, so lots of good things. So two weekends ago... Um, what I believe uh, is the greatest sporting event uh, of the year happened, at least my favorite one, and that's the Masters Golf Tournament down in Augusta, Georgia. Um, A lot of people that like golf would concur with that statement. There's a lot of things that I like about the Masters, um, except the fact that it's over um, and lament that. But one of the things that happens every year is there's a whole week called Masters Week. It's kind of like the Holy Week of golf. And so there's so much coverage, none of which I get tired of. But one of the things that they do repetitively throughout the week and then definitely throughout the weekend is they will have um, a lot of different people commenting on it. But the people that are the most uh, interesting to listen to are former winners of this great golf tournament, the Masters, and people that have actually played Augusta National before. And so when you hear them talk about it, it just has more weight and more significant as they detail each hole and this particular green and the tree there and this. And when I won it back in 85, this is what it felt like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There are present-day people that talk about the Masters, but I don't listen to them as much as the people that have been there, done that, won won the tournament, played the course. So David of the Bible... In 2 Samuel chapter 22, is speaking to us in a kind of been there, done that, not with the masters or a golf tournament, but with God, and not a been there, done that in a yawning, I don't care kind of way, but in a very seasoned, a very intimate, a very rich reflection towards the end of his journey of life. David reflects poetically. Um, with really, really rich reflection of words actually in a song. I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, but 2 Samuel 22 is about 50 verses, of which we will not read all of. Um, it's paralleled in Psalm 18 of David reflecting poetically about his journey with God. This is David focusing on who God is and what he's done. 2 Samuel chapter 22. 
Hopefully this will serve to be uh, a good ending or at least penultimate uh, lesson or scripture in your series semester on David. So the verses, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and then I'm going to skip and I'll tell you where I am with that. I need to look at my own notes on what verses I decided to read. I don't like listening to 51 verses because I tend to be ADD. They're all great, but I just kind of assume some of you might be like me, and so I just picked some that we're going to read, yet we're going to reflect essentially on all of them. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, And David spoke to the Lord words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress... I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From His temple He heard my voice, and my cry came to His ears. And we'll skip to verse 21. I have no idea what's up there, by the way, and I might be in the way uh, as well. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. Torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are a lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him, and then skip down to verse 47. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Let's pray just for a moment. Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your truth. We pray that you would show us your truth, and we pray that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So recently, I finished watching the last installments of the BBC and PBS version of Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if there's any fans out there of the series. I watched it right when it came out, and then they were uh, rolling out the episodes so slowly, I kind of lost interest. And then recently, this winter, I re-watched, or went back and rewatched, and then watched the episodes that I haven't had not seen. You know, this show uh, stars um, a guy that's kind of hurting on the uh, looks spectrum, according to most women that I talk to, Benedict Cumberbatch um, and Bilbo Baggins, right? Uh, Martin Freeman 
plays the character of John Watson. And so, Sherlock, Benedict, your heart throb. In uh, season three, episode two, uh, which is John Watson's wedding, uh, Sherlock, Benedict, uh, is asked uh, to be the best man and therefore to give this toast. And, And this toast... If you watch the show, I won't get sidetracked on this. It's really interesting on a lot of different levels. But at one point, finally, he gets to talking about what he ought to be talking about, which is their marriage and this wedding. And he says this, Marriage is God's own plan to enhance the beauty of His creation. Or it would be If God were not a ludicrous fantasy designed to provide a career opportunity for the family idiot. So his opinion of God, at least in the show, God is a ludicrous fantasy designed to provide a career opportunity for the family idiot. I want to use his assessment and this statement to begin with a question for you to contemplate and ask you even to do a little bit of work internally. The question simply is, who is God to you? Who is God to you? Some of you have a long history with God, a long history in your family, a long history in your church, a long history in your community, a long history in Southern culture with God. And so you might have a lot of thoughts of Him. Others of you might be new to the idea, even just exploring for the very first time who God is. But the reality is everybody thinks something when someone like me says, God. I say God, you think what? It's been said that what a person thinks of when they think of God is the most important thing about them. What you think of when you think of God, it has been said, is the most important thing about you. It's also been said that you can't really know yourself without knowing God. So what do you know about God? What do you think about God? What do you believe about Him? Is God on the periphery? of your life? Or is God at the center of your life? It's also been said that our hearts are restless as humans. And they will continue to be restless until they find their rest in God. Or another way of saying it, years later, from someone else, Pascal, said that every human being was born with a God-shaped vacuum. And we are constantly trying to fill that vacuum with other things. But that vacuum, that space, only has a shape that God can fill. What do you think about God? I say God, you think what? I wonder if you like to think about God. I mean, you're here on a Tuesday night. You could be doing a lot of other things, right? Be at Cool Beans. Do people still go to Cool Beans? Just kidding. I guess they do. Um, But you're here on a Tuesday night, so you think something about God, maybe. Or maybe you think about girls. There's a lot of them here. That's okay. Right? 
It's very easy at your stage of life, really at any stage of life, but particularly your stage of life to reason. You know, I do have thoughts about God. I actually, if I'm honest, don't like to think about God right now a whole lot. I used to think about God a lot. I will think about God again one day, you know, when I like, have a family and I'm grown up and stuff. But right now there's so many other things that I enjoy thinking about. Right? I used to describe, particularly UT, but I think this is true about many colleges as I've traveled the country and been on many college campuses. It's very much a perpetual what happens in Vegas mentality, right? Like college is a perpetual spring break where the ethical and moral reasoning is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? And so it's very easy to approach this entire time in your life like that, right? So like God used to be on my radar. Eh, Not so much now. I mean, I am here on a Tuesday night, so maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but still... What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And then once we leave Vegas, we'll just go back to Franklin and kind of like cultivate the American dream, right? And which includes God again. And a suburban, right? Um, That's just kind of how it works. But the problem with what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is this. It doesn't stay in Vegas. And another problem about the mentality of what happens in Vegas or what happens on spring break stays on spring break is that Vegas, if Vegas is college, or spring break perpetually, if that's college, just happens to be, mm, I don't know, probably, arguably, the most formative years of your life. I mean, you're only doing things like potentially finding the person you might marry solidifying your convictions and what you believe to be ultimate reality in this world, deciding your career path, kind of a a risky time to have the world view of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and I'll just kind of get serious about thoughts of God later. So what do you think about God? Do you think about God? What do you believe about Him? What has shaped your beliefs about Him. Remember, someone said it's the most important thing about you. Someone else, C.S. Lewis said, that's an important question, but there's even another question that's more important, which is, what does God think of you? And see, we have the privilege tonight through God's Word in 2 Samuel 22, or you could read Psalm 18, which is essentially the same word for word, to hear... A seasoned man who's played the course, who's been on every green, who knows every tree and every sand trap, seemingly, of what it means to walk with God and to know God. The good, the bad, and the ugly, actually. We have King David, a man after God's own heart, share with us his reflections about who God is and what He's done. And so the goal for tonight would be, if you already know God, to sit back and to allow David to speak words that you might have forgotten. Or to maybe speak words that you've never known because you're just exploring who God is. The goal tonight would be to gain a deeper appreciation for who God is and what He's done, not only in David's life, but also in your life already, presently, and not yet fully. 
This psalm, as I already said, is a poetic reflection of praise, which is literally a song. I mean, the psalms, for example, were the Old Testament people of God's hymn book. They sang them. David wrote this and David sang this. And Israelites and Hebrews sang this song about God. What does David say, first of all, about who he is? And then secondly, we'll look at what God has done. Verses 1 through 4, David really sets a foundation here for who God is. David says that God is a rock. He is a fortress. He is a refuge. That God is salvation. That God is a stronghold. That God is a savior. What does it mean that God is a rock? It's a fairly simple metaphor and analogy and an apropos one for this campus, right? I mean, we have a rock. In fact, when I was leaving my tenure here at UT, um, you, you know, five years ago, um, went out in the middle of the night before the last large group and painted my name on the rock. Uh, and took a great picture, and it's in my office, and it's something that I really cherish. Of course, it was gone, you know, hours later, as everything seemingly is that gets written on the rock. But the rock here on this campus is a, is a staple, right? It's an institutional monument. Uh, it is a rock like God, right, that is never to be moved, never to be changed, right? Wrong. Right? They almost got rid of it. And it already has been moved. You know, it used to be on a different corner, right? Like it was on the corner where the health shop, or the health, not the health shop, but the health center. That's where it was. I I can't remember how they moved it, but they literally moved it, right? But David's reflecting upon God using the same image, but he's probably not talking about a rock that could be moved from one corner to another on a college campus. He probably has in mind a rock more like K2. Or Everest, or Maru, these great historic peaks in the Himalayas, right? That God is like that a towering object that is stable, that is unchangeable, that is unmovable. That's David says, that's who God is. God is also, David says, a fortress. Fortresses are, it's not a word we use. A lot right now, but you probably understand enough historically, or we've watched movies, we understand fortresses are these walls, these embankments that encompass us, that shield us, that protect us. And David says that's who God is. David also says that God is a refuge. We want to camp here for a minute because I think this is an image that really hits home for us, whether it's a word we use or not, a word that would be synonymous with a refuge as we reflect upon who God is. God is home. I don't know if you think about this. I don't know how often you think about it. Some of you think about it a lot, as in your literal home, and you miss it a lot. But all of us long for a home. Whether we know it or not. C.S. Lewis talks about this actually a lot. He talks about it in Mere Christianity, and of course, in Narnia, it's talked about often. This longing we have to go home. Well, what David's saying is God is our home. He is 
our refuge. I don't know if you've seen this because it's a few years, maybe more than a few years old now. It came out when I was doing this and there were people out there in front of me that are not you. Um, Sigurus, the Icelandic band, came out with a film uh, entitled Haima, which means home. If you are familiar with the band, I don't know if you care, or if you've seen the film or not. If not, I would uh, encourage you to watch it on YouTube because you can watch the trailer. I mean, the whole film's amazing. But the trailer for Sigurosa's film called Haima begins with one of the bandmates in beautiful music in the background saying this, I sometimes get this strange and uncontrollable urge to want to go home. A safe haven for us. Iceland. And then seriously, like the the cinematography and the images and the music will make you weep. If you're alone, you might be embarrassed if you're with somebody else. Watch it. But they get the idea that David's talking about. I don't know if you sing this song or not, but Anne Steele wrote, A long time ago, dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies, to thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal, thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Y'all sing that song? You need to. I'll tell Matt. It's a great one. But that's what David's saying. David's saying that God is a refuge of his weary soul. That's who God is. That's what David thinks about God. Do you see God as home? Do you see God as the only one, ultimately at the end of the day, that can tell you who you are? That can save you? That can be your stronghold? That can be your salvation? You see, we look to so many other things, right? You know this. As strongholds, as saviors, as salvations. And so we get so confused because we're so insecure and because we're broken and we live in a broken world and we look to other people. Maybe the person that we are dating or the person that we want to date. And essentially what we conclude is this. Tell me who I am. Be my home. Be my refuge. Be my stronghold. Be my salvation. Be my Savior. And that's a weight and a burden that no human can bear. But we do it with things that are not human. We do that with success and reputation and academics and money and sex and our bodies. We look to these things to be our home. David understands that, by the way. He pretty infamously looked to someone else's body and to sex to be his haima, his home, right? He understands, but here he's saying, look, ultimately God is my home. God is my rock. God is my fortress. He is my refuge. He is my savior. He is my stronghold. And then here's the application. If these things are true about who God is, so what? David tells us in verse 4, therefore I call upon Him. Like if all these things are true about Him, why would we not call upon Him? By the way, calling upon Him, I don't have time to unpack it in great detail, but I realized as I was thinking through this, it's just one of those phrases that like Christians say 
And if you're not a Christian, you're like, I don't know what it means to call upon God. Or if you're a Christian, you're probably like, I don't know what it means to call upon God. It sounds great. It sounds good. What does it mean? I don't know. It means to talk about Him. It means to talk to Him. It means to engage in conversation with other people about something other than other people. Like God. You can call upon God when you talk about Him. You can call upon God when you talk to Him. You can call upon God when you pray. We just got finished calling upon God in two ways. By singing and by hearing God's Word. When we open His Word, we're calling upon Him. If all these things are true about Him, so what? David says, call upon Him. That's who He is. But what about for you? Who is God? What do you think about Him? So what? David secondly reflects in this song, in this poetry, what God has done. And the first thing that David tells us in these group of verses, starting in verse 5, is a concept that stands out not only in this song, but also throughout David's life, throughout psalm after psalm after psalm. What has God done? I've reduced it to three things in all these verses. God has rescued, God has recognized, and God has empowered or equipped. So David, first of all, recognizes what God has done by seeing God as a rescuer. So there's a film that won an Academy Award in the most recent ceremony, won an Oscar in the most recent Academy Awards for the best short documentary film. It's a film entitled The White Helmets. The White Helmets are a group of normal citizens in Syria uh, known also as the Syrian Civil Defense They train in Turkey so they can practice emergency medical assistance in Syria. You know, because Syria, in the last four years, has had close to half a million people murdered and has had another millions displaced, right, by an oppressive regime. And here, this band of soldiers called the White Helmets are seeking to rescue people. And they wear white helmets because these cities in Syria are constantly being bombed. And there's concrete and shrapnel and rebar everywhere all over these cities. And this film documents some of their occurrences of literally pulling month-old babies out of the bottom of a pile of concrete because they heard a cry. They're rescuers. The White Helmets are a group of men, actually Muslim men, who are rescuing people from the rubble and from death to the extent that they can in Syria. Scripture also speaks about rescuing, not with a white helmet, but with a white horse. Johnny Cash actually sings about this from Revelation 19 in his song, When the Man Comes Around. 
John reflects in Revelation 19 this type of rescue, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a white helmet, but a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like that flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress in the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. The name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. David sees God as a rescuer. John, as he reflects in Revelation, sees God more specifically as a rescuer by the name of Jesus, who metaphorically rides a white horse to rescue his people. Don't you want to be rescued? People love to sing about rescue, right? Through many dangers, dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It is grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. John Newton, 18th century, England. Or what about you alone can rescue? You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. Matt Redman. 21st century America. People love to sing about rescue. David loved to sing about God rescuing him. Because that's what God does. He rescues. What else does God do according to David? He recognized David's wholeness. I don't know if you picked up on this in verses 21 through 25. Some of you that maybe were following or listening heard this and might have thought, I don't know about that. It sounds weird. Um, let's look at the weirdness of it just for a minute. David says this, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Uh, right. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Like, uh, yeah, you have. Like, committed adultery and murdered the person that you committed adulteries with, a husband. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. Uh, I was blameless before him, and I kept, like at this point you're kind of like, uh, David was a lot of things, but at this point I don't think he's very self-aware. Um, I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his sight. What in the world is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. Number one, he's speaking specifically about being righteous and clean with regard to the things that his enemies, namely Saul, were accusing him of. He's not talking about ultimate sinlessness or perfection before the Lord. And by the way, he does this a bunch in the Psalms, so hopefully that, if you care or have ever wondered, that's one like interpretive grid that can help you. David's not saying he's sinless. David never claims perfection. But David is saying here, look, I'm right with regard to the wrong they're accusing me of. But another thing that we can see in these verses that God recognizes and affirms in David is this. 
the general direction of your life was one of wholeness. The general theme in your life, while it was not perfection or sinlessness, it was a theme of integrity and purity holistically. Truly, not fully. And God recognizes that. And God affirms that. And God blesses David for his wholeness and his integrity and his purity. Does David's wholeness, integrity, and and his purity, does it merit God's love or his salvation? No. Is David and are you and I blessed by God through being obedient? Yes. Do we merit His favor? No. Are we blessed by obedience? Yes. Does our status with God change if we're truly in Christ? Whether we are pure or impure? No. Does our experience with God change whether we are pure or impure? I don't know. You tell me what it feels like to worship at RUF versus looking at pornography. I don't know. What, what is a better experience with you and God? Is it a better experience to reflect upon Psalm 139 and delight in that you were fearfully and wonderfully made? Or is it a better experience with God to look in the mirror and hate your body? So David's giving us an invitation into something that's pretty amazing. God affirms and recognizes him for a general direction of wholeness, purity, and integrity in his life, yet not sinlessness nor perfection. Because we could never merit God's love, but we can receive God's blessing when we're pure. And David reflects upon that. The very last thing that I want us to see about what God does. So God is the things that we said He is. God does rescue and recognize David's wholeness. And then lastly, what God does here is He equips and He empowers David for new life and for continuing wholeheartedness and wholeness as we just spoke about. And the two verses that I want to highlight here are really amazing. Verses 29 and 30. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness... And then listen to this, this is where it's silly almost. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Eugene Peterson has a book about the life of David entitled Leap Over a Wall. David is having this experience with God where he feels like Superman. And it's amazing. My son is 11 years old and it's been fun to introduce him more to music that I like and the music that I used to listen to. And uh, We find ourselves driving a soccer often and so I'm trying to find songs, not only contemporary songs and, that I like that are kind of would fire him up or whatever, but I like to him to be like, hey, I listened to this when I was in high school on the way to a basketball game. A song that I introduced him to recently is from my favorite high school band, R.E.M., from the album that was released in 1986, Life's Rich Pageant. And there's a song on that album entitled Superman. By the way, I understand that I've already mentioned a few songs already, but this is a song and I just thought, it's appropriate during a song to mention songs. Michael Stipe 
amazingly, poetically, simply, through the chorus of the song, says, I am, I am, I am Superman. And I can do anything. I used to love to listen to that. Because I believed it. And in somewhat of a silly way, I thought that I could do that. Right? On whatever was before me. A very poignant experience that I had with that same mentality, and I don't care how corny this sounds, was when I was falling in love with my wife. I can remember the times of getting to know her uh, in the early stages. I can remember listening to U2's in a little while off the Elevation album, uh, driving to her house to pick her up and to hear Bono sing in a way that I can't. That girl, that girl, she's mine. I loved that. In those moments, I felt like I could do anything. I could leap over a wall. I could run against a troop. But that was just about a girl, a pretty amazing girl who's now my wife. But David's saying this in an experience that he's having with his God. With my God, I can run against a troop. With my God, I can leap over a wall. I have a simple question as we end on this particular point. I get that this sounds somewhat sensational. Maybe one of the reasons you like RUF is that RUF is not cheesy to you. But listen to me. Do you ever have an experience with God that feels like this? Because if not, you don't really know God. You might ultimately know Him. I'm not not questioning the state of salvation of your soul. But I'm telling you, people that know God have experiences where they delight in Him with such intimacy and depth that at times, not normatively, not every morning, they feel like they can run against the truth and leap over a wall. Why? Because God's rescued them. Because God has empowered them. Because God has equipped them. David says this throughout the end of this psalm and as he goes into this doxology. He says, God makes me. God trains me. God pursues me. God equips me. Because God delivered me. Ultimately and continually. Acutely and completely. And here's the bottom line. He's pretty fired up about it. David's pretty excited about the fact of who God is and what He's done. So much so that David closes this by singing, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. I've asked the worship team, and y'all can go ahead and come up, by the way, um, to lead us prior to the final song in a way to end the sermon instead of me praying at the end or telling a story at the end. Um, I want us to sing a historic song that's simply referred to as the doxology. The doxology is uh, a liturgical song that's been sung for hundreds of years throughout the history of the church that is reflecting on and praising... God for who He is and what He's done. It's what David has done in 2 Samuel 22. 
It's specifically what David does in verses 47 through 51. And it's what we're going to do here momentarily. We're going to sing a praise to God for who He is and for what He's done. And I think it would be good to stand to do it. Thank you. 